Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We appreciate it. It's April Fool's Day today. Um, not great weather and uh, some heavy stuff happening in the news, but we find our light moments uh, throughout the podcast. On our Chatterbox segment, uh, we've got Alan Cross and Urs here talking about COVID restrictions, talking about the apology that came during our show from uh, Pope Francis to the 32 Indigenous leaders that made the trek from Canada all the way to the Vatican to discuss what happens next. And now what happens after this particular apology? Does it happen on Canadian soil at some point later in the calendar year? We've got a visit as well with Dr. Laurie Turnbull about the Canadian political scene right now. And uh, I want to talk about restrictions and what what the appetite is for any of them being put back in, given we've seen a slight uptick in hospitalizations and a lot of neurovirus around as well. Not COVID, but neurovirus, which is just flattening people. Tis the season, as some infectious disease specialists have told me. So that's all coming up on the Toronto Today podcast, which begins now. Let me start here uh, with what we're getting at. Today is the day that gas prices went up. And this isn't just about Russian oil reserves, and it's not about things that the United States uh, are doing with uh, a release of a ton of not just oil uh, reserves, but land to pump on those reserves. I'm mixed about this. Of course I am. Um, I think about it when I uh, talk to a friend that's bought an electric car. I think about it when I try and take public transit. I'm out in the suburbs. Um, I'd love to take the, I would probably take the go train to work if it ran 24 hours a day. I would take it sometimes, come down here to Chorus Key, do the show. Um, I don't know. You might, what, I don't know what kind of crazies would be on the train at 3.30 in the morning, but either way, I would, I would do the best that I could. Um, carbon tax goes up today. Gas is 2.2 cents per liter more because of that. It's 6 cents more than it was yesterday, but 2.2 cents of that per liter is carbon tax. I really thought there'd be more of a conversation about this. I know Patrick Brown, the conservative party can, uh, leadership candidate is att- really made a uh, push out there. And I think he did this before he even announced he was running uh, for the leadership role with the CPC. And he said, we've got to consider delaying this. If not a cancellation, delay it. And there have been studies out there when we look at carbon tax as to who pays for it companies or consumers and you might say because we've said this for two years i think with COVID too people run small businesses i've heard people make that case before who are the sort of COVID zero loons who wanted everybody to hide under a table and don't do anything and shut down and lock down well you're picking the economy over health Mm, the economy helps people be healthy The economy helps people spend money on things that keep them healthy. Families have to pay for braces. Families have to pay for medical supplies. Families would like to take their kid, yeah, to the dentist. They may even need to help elderly parents with things like that. So businesses matter. Um, The carbon tax was believed about a year and a half ago, two years ago, when, when a lot of it was really getting debated. Who's going to pay the most for it? People, consumers, you and me, or corporations. And it was pretty obvious it was going to come out of our pocket. It was pretty obvious that, especially along the 401 corridor where we drive, and man, do we drive. I hear from people who listen to the show who drive from Markham all the way out to Brampton over the course of a day. They come from where uh, near where I am, Pickering, and they go all the way up to Richmond Hill and back over the course of a day. And that's that's not even people who deliver. That's a straight A to B. 
That's not people dropping off supplies. That's not truckers. That's people going from one place to the other. Hell, I used to work in uh, in Michigan and would do OHL play-by-play games, and I cared about it so much that I would drive 80 miles to do home games for the Saginaw Spirit. 80 miles. On a Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock, I'd get in the car, I'd go up and I'd do the game. If there was another game uh, the next day in Saginaw, I would stay overnight, and if there wasn't, I would come home, and I'd go back up on Sunday. So I had no problem doing those things. Some things are labors of love. Some things are passion projects, but I'm really, I'm trying not to be surprised that with everything that's happened, whether it's the protest in Ottawa, whether it ends up being uh, the inflation at the grocery store, the idea of free things no longer being free anymore. We talked about that at six o'clock, the idea of your taxpayer funded COVID tests. We got to stop calling them free. There's no money tree. Nobody goes to some, uh, you know, magical island, picks a bunch of COVID tests, rapid or PCR off a tree and says, there, we can bring them back to the people of Canada and not charge them anything. No, we pay for those. Our tax dollars will pay for those. And I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. I want there to be an economic threshold by which uh, people that can't afford uh, under a certain level of income per household could get free COVID tests. But uh, I'm lucky. I'm lucky with the money that our family makes and I don't need a free test. You got to stop giving me free COVID stuff. Okay. I'll pay for it. This goes to the principle to some extent, how people feel about a two tier healthcare system. Can I get it faster? Well, then I'll pay for it. And you hear so many people shut it down. No, 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 no. We can't have that. We can't become the United States. I'm not talking about becoming the United States. I'm talking about having a floor in a basement that works for some people that makes them not pay to get themselves well at a certain point in time. And I'm talking about charging more to the people that can afford it the most. And here's the problem with the carbon tax. It doesn't do that. It takes into no consideration what you make. Uh, and, and what goes in your bank account at the end of the month or on Fridays. It takes no consideration what type of gas you need for your car. It takes no consideration how far you're driving for work. It does none of those things. So much so that when this was first getting debated in the House of Commons, I want you to hear this audio, uh, Justin Trudeau kind of stepped in and he was calling it a carbon plan. And the opposition, the conservatives at the time, said, and this is Andrew Shear's conservatives, said it's a tax. And Trudeau said, no, 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 it's a carbon plan until one day in the House of Commons, he slipped up and said this. Speaker, Canadians need economic growth and good jobs at the same time as we protect the environment. That's exactly what this government is showing the leadership around doing uh, that had been lacking for far too long uh, from the previous government. Uh, what we're also guaranteeing is uh, that this uh, tax, uh, this uh, pricing uh, price No members are anxious to applaud the prime minister, but they should wait till he finishes his response. 
Not a bad line by the speaker. Also, funny in the video, uh, when I was looking at it uh, last night, is uh, about three seats down from uh, Justin Trudeau is uh, former MP Jody Wilson-Raybould. I find that really kind of humorous now because she even laughs. Many of the liberal party uh, surrounding him laughed at the gap. In the row behind him, by the way, is, uh, is the Honorable Mark Garneau. He was an astronaut. That means he's smart. Well, I don't know where he's gone to in this current government. We could use maybe more Mark Garneau's and Jody Wilson-Raybould's uh, surrounding Justin Trudeau. Either way, this tax does discriminate. Okay, it is a discriminatory tax, and I'm a little bit surprised. You might say, well, it's not like the prime minister has to worry about an election anytime soon. And you'd be right about that. The deal with the New Democrats does that. Look, we should take consideration in we should take the environment into consideration. But I did wonder whether there was going to be an ease up and whether it would have made sense. I never feel doing things for the environment is a helpless task. And yet I don't quite know how we all get on the same page with it, with China, with India, with anyone else. Joe Biden released a ton of oil, by the way, yesterday. If you're uh, checking the markets this morning, oil is under $100 a barrel and is expected to stay that way. We're not going to see this $2 a liter uh, business or $2.25 a liter gas that many were predicting out of this. I think that's pretty obvious now. Joe Biden said this yesterday about releasing more oil to consumers. Oil and gas industry is sitting on nearly 9,000 unused but approved permits for production on federal lands. Or more than a million unused acres they have a right to, to pump on. Families can't afford that companies sit on these their hands. So, to help execute this first part of my plan, I'm calling for a use-it-or-lose-it policy. Congress should make companies pay fees on wells on federal leases they haven't used in years, and acres of public land they're hoarding without production. Companies that are already producing from these wells won't be affected. But those sitting on unused leases and idle wells will either have to start producing or pay the price for their inaction. I mean, this is to some extent drill, baby, drill. And it's something the Democrats tried to hold their hand up and say, not so fast. That's not what we're doing. But this is where it's going right now. And I know there's tenses. I know that sounded a little more complex than maybe it actually is. But the bottom line is, this is really unprecedented. This is something um, that is going to ease pain at the pump. There's no doubt this is going to bring prices bring prices down. I asked a couple of business people yesterday who know this stuff way, way better than I do. And they said, absolutely. We may get down to 85 or 90 cents a barrel. I said, what could this bring gas down to? They said, maybe back down to $1.35 or $1.40 a liter by the summer. We'll sign up for that. We'll take that, given... We were all worried. I mean, you know, we talk about doomsday doctors. There were some doomsday predictions about $2.20 a liter. So um, does this resolve anything to do with the environment? Not necessarily. Does it resolve in the energy crisis? No, this is temporary. This is a bridge. Okay. This is not building a home. It's building a bridge to the end of the year. And they want to ramp more domestic production up. And I think there has to be more of a conversation about the Keystone Pipeline. People are still hand, ha hammering Trudeau for that. Joe Biden stopped the Keystone Pipeline. Justin Trudeau didn't do that. What's your thought on the carbon tax holding today? Do you look at the prime minister and say he doesn't get it? He's not helping us. Uh, this is a discriminatory tax. It doesn't matter if you make 40 grand or 400 grand. You're hitting people the same way. And I'm not sure that that is either good politics or that's just plain good business. 
uh, Joe Biden, president of the United States, releasing one million barrels of oil per day. That sounds like a very Dr. Evil-esque round number. But for the next 180 days, one million barrels a day. How is it going to affect Americans price at the pump? There will be some, you know, trickle down effect for us here in Canada and maybe across the world. Uh, We're very pleased to welcome back Mike Rothman, uh, president of Cornerstone Analytics. Mike, thanks very much for making the time for us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. How can I uh, help you? (laughs) Well, how do you think this uh, release from President Biden impacts prices at the pump? And and does it come sort of drip, drip, drip over time or or, or will consumers see an immediate uh, any sense of immediate relief? It's unlikely that it's going to help uh, in the immediate uh, time period in front of us. The thing is, you're trying to deal with a structural supply-demand issue by using a temporary measure. That's why it's going to ultimately fail, number one. Number two, it's not clear that the latest release of oil from the Strategic Reserve in the U.S. will actually be enough to offset anticipated losses of production from both Russia and Ukraine. So mm-hmm. it's a case of uh, the boat's filling up with water and you're using a coffee cup to try to you know, drain it. So uh, we don't know because there really hasn't been any good data yet on just how much production is being uh, affected by these self-imposed embargoes against Russia. And the other thing, which is something that remains to be seen is whether OPEC will actually end up cutting its production as an offset. Now, when we have what's called non-emergency releases of emergency stockpiles, at every um, occurrence of that, going back into the 90s, the price of oil actually rallied through the release. That That's the problem. Currently, there's no refiners that are saying they can't get feedstock. So the the wisdom and the issue of the release is a bit of a question, number one. Number two, most people who are looking at this pretty much realize that it's an attempt to get gasoline prices at the pump down ahead of midterm elections, which is typically something that ends up not working out for the administration that's actually letting this mm-hmm. oil sale take place. So it's it created a little bit of hoo-ha yesterday, and, and we did see oil prices sell off on the day, but it's really a problem for uh, trying to resolve with our bigger structural uh, bullish oil market fundamentals. Mike, I was going to ask about the political implications of that, and and they're widespread for sure, and we've got a long time to go. I mean, we're talking, you know, seven months until the midterm elections, but I think what we Canadians look at is the tremendous disparity in prices at the pump uh, state to state. You could be in Denver, Colorado. You can fill up for under four bucks a gallon. You're paying over six bucks a gallon for the same gas in California. There's always been disparities geographically, but have they just become way more spread out and uh, and considerable? Well, they become spread out over time, and it does have to do with the fact that uh, states and local municipalities have the ability to levy, levy their own uh, taxes on gasoline. So that's why you see that uh, big disparity when you look at uh, fuel costs uh, in different parts of the country. The The issue here is that if you strip out state, local, federal taxes, the refining margin and even the retail margin, the biggest variable that causes gasoline prices at the pump uh, to change has to do with crude oil. Now, crude oil prices, even at today's level, are more than double where they were 
uh, a year ago. So every $10 increase in the price of crude, on average, adds about $0.25 cents a gallon to prices at the pump. That's just the conversion of barrels to gallons. So the question then becomes, well, why are crude prices twice as high as they were a year yeah. ago? Which yeah. most people don't want to talk about, but that has to do with the global supply-demand situation. The Literally the largest ever drawdown on inventories globally, uh, Ever. I mean, when I say ever, I mean our supply-demand models go back to 1971. There's nothing close to what happened last year. So that's the bigger issue. Uh, Non-OPEC supply not growing as much as everybody thought. A lot of people believed who are, you know, my contemporaries, uh, they believed that U.S. oil production was going to come surging back last year. U.S. oil production was actually down in 21 versus 20. So there's a lot of things where people have been kind of spectacularly wrong about, you know, what they thought was going to occur. We just added um, two cents to a carbon tax today that's meant to pay off uh, pollution in Canada. It's controversial. About 10 cents per liter of, of let's say, $1.70 per liter is going to a carbon tax right now. So maybe it's not much, but it's about 6% of the total bill. And obviously taxes factor into a good 35 40%. So it, it brings out environmentalists uh, talking about whether or not we should you know, be using increases or even the war in Ukraine as a as a pretext to increase production. I just wonder how are, are those voices louder than they were a few months ago? Or do people are people like I only got time to worry about my budget right now and my paycheck and what goes in my gas tank right now? I, I care about the environment, but I got a laser focus right now on just paying less for things. You, you document the price of food. People just, again, we can only juggle so many balls at a time in the air. What's the concept and, and, and are environmentalists being heard? Or do people just say, I, I don't have time for this right now? Well, there's a debate about whether they are heard and then whether they should be heard, right? That's mm-hmm. a different kind of a discussion. But the fact is that there is an environmental lobby, just like there's an oil industry lobby, and you have this rift a disparity between the camps and the thing is what's lost is you know certain facts so factually you have to understand that the world runs on oil people don't want to hear it but the reality is the world runs on oil the world runs on carbon-based fuels i think uh, the number is 85 percent of total energy consumption in the world is carbon-based and the idea of living without oil well listen i got you know five grandkids and i got another one on the way i'm the first guy to say a clean earth is something we all have in common, right? Mm -hmm. Who who would be against that? But if you want to enjoy the standard of living uh, that you have, there's no way to divorce yourself from using petroleum. It's simply not possible. And it's not even possible to think about that as an actual outcome when you're talking about two, three decades out in the future. The, the, The world used to burn wood, then we burned coal, now we burn oil. And one day, maybe human ingenuity will... Uh, allow us to burn, you know, seawater and sunshine. But until that happens, you're stuck with oil and having to talk to guys like me. And <laughs> the idea that you're going to legislate away uh, petroleum is kind of silly because what you're really trying to say is we're going to just let the standard of living uh, collapse. I mean, if you want to turn off the lights and have no heat, not be able to cook, not grow food, you know, great. But that's the cost of trying to get rid of oil. Or, or pay twice as much for your car. I mean, that's that's the that's the problem with the electric car right now. And then there's charging stations and then there's where do those go in big cities? You've been to New York, Chicago, here in Toronto. Where are we plugging all these cars in? We're not sure. Well, the, the funny thing about electric cars, as people, many people think they're the kind of golden bullet for uh, uh, petroleum. Mm-hmm. Right? 
we'll have electric cars and, and that'll take care of the oil. And then you say, well, you know where electricity comes from? And 99% of people point to an outlet on the wall and they're like, well, that's where electricity comes from. They're not thinking about what you use to make electricity. You know, 55% of the world's electric power is from coal. So if someone thinks it's smarter to burn coal to run a car as opposed to burning petroleum, uh, God bless them. But it's, it, is a, it is a kind of a fallacy, and it's been mm. sold to people as this cure oil, but it's yeah. really not. I mean, the fact is we're, we're still going to be living with carbon-based fuels for, the, for the, what I call the forecastable future. Yeah. Um, great to have you on. Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate your insight on this. Have a great weekend. You as well, sir. Thanks for making time. Thanks so much. Mike Rothman, president of Cornerstone Analytics. It's uh, Alan Cross is musicologist, host of the ongoing history of new music and a journal of musical things is his blog. And Urs here, conservative activist. Urs, it's great to have uh, you back on. Thank you for making the time for us. Hey, thanks for having me. Urs, let's start here. Um, the breaking news this morning, obviously for us on our show, and, and I'm sure on every uh, talk show across the country, is the apology that comes from Pope Francis this morning about residential schools. Uh, a delegate, a delegation of 32 indigenous leaders goes to the Vatican. They have conversations. The apology comes today. I don't know. For some, um, you know, I, I want to defer because there's there's indigenous um, activists that say this apology is necessary to take the next step forward in terms of accountability and, and reconciliation. There's some that say it's meaningless. It's way, way too late. Do you weigh in on one side or the other? I think it's it, it was an apology that was much needed. Uh, it needed to happen. They've been talking since 2009. And I think Pope Francis did the right thing in apologizing, coming out with saying the words, I am sorry. I think that's something that the indigenous, indigenous peoples wanted to hear and needed to hear. And I think it's the first step to other things that can be done to try to rectify. We can't fix what happened in the past, but I think this is a really big step and, and great leadership uh, on Pope Francis. Alan, do you look and say it was one of those things that, that had to happen? It allows some to move forward. And if it's not the biggest thing for others that say, well, I, I don't need it, but that's fine. Me, if it's not for you, it sure means a lot to other members of the indigenous community. And, and, and it's the step forward to get us where we need to go next, which is, again, the entire concept, why we had a holiday last fall, why we're talking more about this and explaining why, to be honest, um, the generation that came before us, just just whiffed on this. They missed this and, and, and needed to be better at, at recognizing what was happening. Yeah, it had to be done. It was a small step. As a lapsed Catholic, I'm glad to see that the church is owning up to uh, past crimes and past in, mm -hmm. indiscretion. So, yes, it was good. And uh, you knew that this was coming. Uh, like Urs says, this has been in... Uh, is, this has been the works for, for over 10 years. And you knew that when that delegation landed in Rome, that this was going to happen. You don't go all that way and make that with all this press and all this attention without there's something coming. So you knew that going into mm. yesterday's meeting, that something was going on. And I'm glad it happened. A small step. Let's keep going. Let's let's fix this. For God's sake, let's fix it. Yeah. And honest conversations about what, what we do more uh, and, and what we do, not even to make sure it never happens again, because that seems a long shot. But we, we've just got to bring people in and, and reconcile um, and, and, and feel people's anger and feel people's frustration that we did so little for so long. It, it's or, or as I'll say this as, as having kids in school, realizing when they both were in elementary school, teachers were talking about it. I'm like, well, that's a that's a damn sight better than when I was in elementary school or high school and nobody spoke of it. It's not 
in any of our history books, and it needs to be. It needs to be, definitely. I think it's something that will come out as a, as a next step. Uh, you know, this apology was the first step, but hopefully there's a lot more things that'll come that'll help in that uh, path to reconciliation. Urs here, Alan Cross joining us on uh, on Chatterbox. Um, let's move to the to yesterday. Andrea Horvath, Alan, criticizing uh, Doug Ford, the provincial government. Look, that's what opposition leaders do. That's what they're meant to do. It doesn't matter what 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 party's in office. Um, but the criticism is about well, the the sixth wave of COVID needs to be acknowledged. What is the premier doing about this? But I don't. I don't know what policies people want reinstalled. It's all been this massive large-scale global tragedy, which we can compartmentalize and, and look at in our own neighborhoods and think about our own households. But I don't I, I don't know what what's expected right now of, of the provincial government. Do you have anything? If you were in charge, you'd say, let's reinstall this, this move too quickly here? I, I think it's too late to go back. We're going to have to mm-hmm. need a full-on uh, health crisis for everybody to wake up and realize that, uh-oh, maybe we jumped the gun. But, you know, Ontario and Canada was swept up in the uh, what, what the rest of the world seems to be doing. It's like, okay, we have made this decision that uh, we are going to endure COVID from here on in rather than you know uh, fight it with lockdowns and, and uh, all kinds of other restrictions. So I don't know what we can do. I, I am worried about it. There's a very big uh, story in the Golden Mail this morning over a couple of pages that talks about the difference between pandemic and endemic and how uh, various countries around the world are dealing with it. Um, again, we're almost at a, well, we're starting to see cases tick up. We're seeing interest uh, in, in wastewater results with the virus being found to be on the increase. Um, and we're two weeks out from spring break. So let's let the next two weeks, I think, are going to be really, really critical. Um, and anecdotally, uh, over mm-hmm. the last two weeks, more friends of mine have come down with COVID than in the entire uh pandemic i agree with you yeah urs are you finding that too more so than even around christmas time when people were scrambling for tests and and uh and when schools were we weren't sure if schools would open in january and they didn't for a while are are you finding that anecdotally also a lot of friends testing positive yeah i am finding a lot of friends testing positive i don't know if people are more comfortable admitting that they got covid Mm -hmm. or if it's the um, the fact that we're just now in a phase where we're learning to live with COVID. I feel bad for the provincial government. You know, there's no winning. You add uh, restrictions and people are, you know, upset. You know, people were tired of two years of lockdowns and restrictions. Businesses were suffering. Faith places were begging for openings so churchgoers could go and attend service. And now we have Easter upon us. You know, we don't want to be living what we, you know, how we lived the last two years, sneaking around to secretly see our parents or our family, you know, and, and we just can't live in lockdown forever. It's just not practical. Um, you know, even though seg- some segments want restrictions um, to stay, but like if anything stays, it's going to be the masks. And, you know, you wear it if you feel uncomfortable and you want to stay safe and you don't wear it if you don't, if you feel like you're okay. And I think that's just how our this next phase of reality is just going to be we're going to have to use our best judgment is that is that i know alan every time a big uh, concert gets announced i think of you and i'm like well alan cross go to this the masks are really awesome the n95s are pretty awesome compared to the cloth ones the vaccines are pretty brilliant as well i, I think that's that's a question a lot of people are are asking is um is whether you know which of them are, are people doubting if they're if they're not willing to be out there the vaccines or the masks like like we got all those we got all those weapons to, to, you know, weaponize ourselves and protect ourselves for a reason. 
There is a new survey by a company called Luminate, which looks after all things music in this country. And uh, the 2022 Music Fan Survey of Canada came out this week. And they say that 50% of all the people in Canada who identify as music fans are going to be going to a concert in the next uh, 12 months. However, half of those people will not go Hmm. unless the COVID situation um, sorts itself out. You know, even yesterday in the grocery store, I'm looking, it's probably 66% people with masks and 33% without, um, and the other 1% have masks, but they're down over their nose. Um, I, I've, it's going to be a while before I think we find this, this balance. And if people keep watching the news and keep seeing these, you know, the sixth wave news coming in, I think we'll, we'll see that go up. Yeah, and I think businesses have tough calls to make. Um, Alan, did you see employees Without, because I have, I didn't last week, but I did this week, and and it's very random. It doesn't go along, you know, demographic lines. I'm I see a cashier that I've seen like ten years. I've lived there, and she's probably seventy two, seventy three years old. She's an older woman. She didn't have a mask on, and yet, like a twenty three year old stock boy did. Like I, are you seeing that? Uh, I am, but in Halton, where I live, there's some confusion over provincial guidelines versus municipal guidelines on wearing masks. So uh, it's 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 hit and miss. Mm. I. I I, I can't find any pattern there. Mm. Hey, Urs, I want to ask you about uh, CPC, and I asked uh, Dr. Lori Turnbull about this last hour, and she thinks it's it's eerily quiet for the CPC mm-hmm. leaders right now. We see Pierre Polyev out there. We learned of his great love for Bitcoin this week. And while we giggle, and sometimes the videos are pretty funny, as I keep me- referencing, we're talking about him. He's on people's minds. Patrick Brown announced, I think, three to four weeks ago now, we haven't heard much from him. Jean Charest recovering from COVID, haven't seen much from him or any of the other candidates. Um, are you surprised that we're seeing a lot of Pierre and a lot less of everybody else? Well, you know, Pierre was first out the gate to make his announcement. And so I think he had more time to organize on the ground and and now he's publicly out on tour. And I think the others, uh, Patrick Brown and John Charest and others, um, you know, have been organizing on the ground. But they're probably just, you know, working the ground. And I know there, there are tours being done. Uh, Patrick was in Montreal. Um, he had posted something with his visit there. So, you know, they're getting out there. But I think, uh, you know, they're they're just catching up. And um there's still time, so they'll be up there. Yeah, ton, tons of time. And Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, just, you know, we're going to hear more. So I think it's just a coincidence that it's tired, it's quiet right now. I think the others are just catching up. But Pierre's been first out of the gate, and he's got, uh, you know, his tours in place. Yeah, I think summer's going to be really busy for it uh, with July and August, and we'll see about scheduled debates and appearances, and we'll see how much, again, with, with COVID even, how much outdoor v. indoor uh, there is when we get to uh, when we get to summertime. Urs, Alan, i got to leave it there. Thank you so much uh, for your contributions. Have a great weekend. You bet. You too. We're back in the World Cup. I don't use the word we very often. I roll my eyes sometimes, right? Like you'll talk to a Jays fan or a Leafs fan and they'll be like, yeah, what we need to do is we got to do But I'll do it for Canada soccer. I'll do it for the women. I'll do it for the men. By the way, I mentioned my grandfather had a sword in his house. <laughs> people are people are saying two things. Um, either their grandfather did as well uh, or uh, Brady, it sounds like you come from a long line of toxic masculinity. I'm like, well, the guy was born in 1908. So that probably is every man. Okay. Born 1908 or earlier. 
by today's standards. That's what I have to say to you about that. But why does the Canadian men's soccer team have a sword and how did this happen? I like this story a lot. And we're coming on uh, to talk uh, about swords with our next guest, Steve Karakostas uh, of Winterborn Blades. Steve, thank you very much for making the time. You're as excited as I am about the draw, first of all, right? Like, 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 I definitely a, am. An 11 out of 10. Who are you hoping we don't play? Uh, you know what? I, I don't even know, to be honest with you, man. I'm just happy that they made it. I'm not a big soccer guy. I might be the only European that's not really into soccer, but uh, <laughs> the last time I was when, is when Greece won the Euro Cup in uh, 2004. I went to Portugal for that. That was the summer I was getting married, and uh, and um, I did come back and got married, but I was I was having such a good time in Portugal. I think that was like 40-60 for a while, um, and I watched Greece play in person a couple times. Um, so this is amazing. Um, this uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, John Herdman's quote after the win, the sword's something that symbolizes new Canada. The team has traveled with a sword that that you made in essence, yeah? yeah. Yes, I did. So tell us how it happened. I just got an email from uh, someone in uh, John's camp and uh, they, just, they were very vague. They just said that uh, they just needed a sword to symbolize a quest. And uh, when I met up with them, then we, I found out it was actually for Team Canada. And uh, they gave me a design, and they gave me free reign to change it up to make it more realistic and functional. And uh, then the rest is history. Now, I love that there's a photo, and I'll read, I'll read the caption of the photo um, from uh, one of the websites. Uh, the photo released on March 28, 2022 by Costa Rica's finance ministry shows the detail of a sword that belongs to Canada's national soccer team after it was seized at the San Jose International Airport in Costa Rica. It's not exactly something you can bring on for carry on, um, but at the same time, it's gorgeous. You've got the like Qatar 2022 is inscribed like there were a lot of specific instructions it looked like for this thing. Yeah, definitely. There was uh, I got everything laser engraved. Uh it was very specific what the, the theme was going to be. So um, I just had pretty much the overall shape. I kind of tweaked and everything else was to their specs. So this isn't an unusual, maybe it's an unusual request for a professional sports team or a national team. Is is unusual? Is this the first one of its kind that you've got like that? Yes, definitely. I usually make uh, swords for, uh, for people to pass down to generation and like heirlooms. Yeah. And I do a lot of wedding swords. And, um, and some camp knives and hunting knives, but mostly swords. I worry. I, I want to give you good business. You go, uh, uh, the website is winterbornblades.com, winterbornblades.com. And I mentioned that my grandfather, who lived in Strathroy, Ontario, had a sword. And I don't know what my problem was. Um, and he kind of had a falling out with, um, with his son, my dad. But I don't know where the sword is now. I really wish I'd put in a claim for it. That's the one thing I wanted. I didn't want, like, I didn't need figurines of the Pope John Paul II. I wanted the sword. I wish I'd kept it. That's the thing with uh, with real swords. It's if you if you hold a fake sword that you get at the flea market in your hand, it's just heavy and bulky. When you hold a real custom made sword, it's, it feels like an extension of your hand. Really, it, it, you can't you there's, you can't put it into words. It's amazing. I couldn't lift this sword of my grandpa's when I was seven years old. It was heavy. I needed both hands to. And you know that around that time, right? Little kids, Star Wars came out when I was like five, and you're thinking you're swinging it around like a lightsaber. And, and my two younger sisters, maybe they're still traumatized by it, but you know, live and learn. I think. <laughs> so how much? How much? If I said I want a Brady family sword. What what are we what are we talking about? You don't have to do it for me because we're getting along. Don't give me any discount. Get, tell me okay, what what that yeah. costs for so the average it, human it, being. It, it depends, right? If you're going for like a two handed longsword, 
they start around three thousand dollars. Okay, and then up. It's, it's I've made for I've made long swords eleven thousand dollars. It just depends what you want in it, like inscriptions, intricate details in in the, in the cross guard, in the pommel, uh, exotic wood handles, carvings. So it just uh, it's all over the place. The cheapest mm-hmm. one would be like a Roman gladius because they're short. Every the the whole handle is just made out of wood, and that goes for around two thousand. Do people ask you to replicate swords made from famous movies? You mentioned Gladiator, Russell Crowe. Do people say, I want a, I want a Russell Crowe, Maximus, uh, Decimus, Meridius sword? Do they do that? Uh, I, I've had one guy ask me. I, I can't make <laughs> it to the exact spec because of copyright, right? So I could tweak it around and we could get around the copyright like that. But uh, that one fell through. How long have you been uh, a... Now, what's what's the term for you? Are you a, a blade... You're not a blade runner. Are you a blade master? What are uh, you? Blade, blade smith. Blade smith. Yeah. I've been doing this since uh, 2012. I've been uh, selling them uh, for the last two and a half years around. Okay. We're talking to Steve uh, Caracostas of Winterborn Blades. You can go to winterbornblades.com and find out more. I'm going to get personal. This is like uh, you're on Oprah's couch now. Are you single? Okay. Uh, no, no. Okay, but imagine being single. Like, I don't, I'd be like, you know, when I used to go out to places before I met my wife, I'm like, I'm on the radio and you'd feel, you get to say you make swords when you're out and you're single. That's, that's really something. <laughs> yeah. That, that's not, that, that's that. not, I'm an accountant, right? Yeah, that's, but, uh, I make swords. But a lot of people look at you weird when you say that when that's <laughs> your actual profession, uh, they just don't understand that people actually pay to have a sword made. How busy did you get when uh, Game of Thrones? That had that. That's big business, right? When Game of Thrones starts and people are obsessed by it, sales must go up, don't they? Questions um, must go up. It's, it's it, the inquiries definitely go up. It's always steady. It's usually I usually have like a twenty five to thir- to thirty week wait list. Yeah, but uh, it I get a lot of a lot of inquiries for Jon Snow's uh, uh, sword with uh, with uh, wolf head pommel, but uh, a lot of people are usually surprised by the price. In that they think it's, they don't think it's too much. They like, they like the price. The prices are great. Exactly. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now tell us the last thing on the, on the Canadian soccer team, you did an an inscription, a Latin saying, what is it in Latin and what does it translate to in English? I I, I don't remember what it was in Latin, but that it says fear nothing. Fear nothing. I love that concept. Yeah. Fear nothing. Great. Coming out of COVID. Fantastic. Fear nothing. That's, that's my, that's my perspective on this. Uh, wow. Amazing that you got to be part of this. Uh, not this interview, but the Canadian soccer team, uh, winterbornblades.com is the website. And, uh, if, if I'm going, if I'm coming anywhere for an heirloom, I got two young sons. I got a, it's sort of, it could be end up being like gladiator, uh, at some point in time, I might have to pick one over the other. Um, thank you very much for, for spending time with us and people can go to winterbornblades.com and find out more. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Awesome to have you on. Uh, that's amazing. Steve Caracostas. Shiva Siddiqui joins me right now. And uh, federal budget, we, why on a Friday? Why can't that be on a Monday? Why does anybody want to go to on, <laughs> into the weekend thinking about the federal budget? But it will go next Friday on April 8th. And I kind of yes. glaze over on budget detail. I, you know, I, like I'm not a business guy per se. Are you a business gal? I, I, it, it doesn't strike me that it's something that is right at the forefront of my brain sometimes, the budget and reacting to it. No, it isn't. But it's always good to sort of keep track of what's going on, where the money is going, what the focus is. And so, I mean, it is coming out next week, the budget. And there was an Ipsos poll that came out that 
talked about what what's on the minds of Canadians right now in terms related to budget, related to their finances. And the biggest one of the biggest concerns people are having right now is just the day to day affordability of their lives. Uh, and a lot of that comes to their overhead, where they're living, how they're affording housing, um, because this poll shows that Canadians are very pessimistic at this point of the pandemic, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully that can change. Hopefully, you know, as we start, you know, living with this pandemic, this this virus, then, you know, we can start, you know, learning, just t- turning our mindset around. So this is a big concern where people are going to live. Now, there's an article that came out that I absolutely love uh, on our globalnews.ca website related to this. So it is very expensive to buy a house, especially in the city of Toronto. A lot of people can't afford it. So during the pandemic, four friends, two couples, each two couples came up with an idea and they went for it. They bought a house together. So they have a co-ownership in the Toronto housing market, uh, which I think is just a genius idea. They wanted more space. They were each renting in condos uh, beforehand. They wanted to buy. They they went to see what was there in their budget and they couldn't figure out uh, they couldn't afford yeah. what they wanted, right? So they came together and one guy, he's like, okay, you know what? I want a little bit of a yard. I want a lot of space. Uh, I am going to be working from home more often than not. Uh, so he sent out an email to a bunch of his friends saying, hey, is anybody interested in purchasing with him? I believe him and his wife. And uh, he got a bunch of replies. So he went through them. <laughs> and really, people needed was- to make sure that it was just about buying a home. This wasn't... Gord's smiling already because he's got swinging on the mind. Gord, what is this? Um, I know you're thinking that. Couple seeks other couple to live together. That's oh, usually the way it goes. Yeah. But that's what well, you'd be you'd be concerned. Could any could a couple live with another couple without sort of knowing them a little bit first? Well, you, well, that's what he did. Right. So he screened everybody that emailed him back and said and he wanted to match up their values, their financial situations, what they could, could afford, what they couldn't afford. Uh, and just see who was on the same page. So him and his wife found uh, another couple. They managed to afford a 3,000 square foot house. And the thing is, your price, so a, a million dollar house in Toronto, 1 million to 1.5, it is just nuts. They go so quickly. There are bully buyers. Uh, they, they get, as soon as they get on the market, they're off the market. It's so hard to get it in that price range. So he went up a little bit. They went over to like the closer to the $2 million range because now they could afford it. There's another couple in the mix and they bought a 3,000 square foot house. Uh, and at, at that, at the, in that range, it's not as competitive. So they're living like this. And uh, I want to know what you think of that. Well, I'm looking at this. So monthly mortgage payments work out to 1500 bucks per person. That's still that's still a lot. I don't think, I think we pay, um, to be honest, I think we pay $2,200 in, in mortgage payments a month. So I think we pay $1,100 every two weeks. So maybe it's over 52 weeks. That's a lot though. That's six grand in mortgage a month split among four people. But they so, say that's what they paid for rent. So they're getting equity yes, in a home. Exactly. And, and so I can understand that, that they were renting forever and a day. It probably is really smart business. I know when we first moved here and we weren't sure what we'd be able to do. And we obviously, I think I've told you before, we had to sell our home on a short sale in Michigan. We had to get the heck out of there. I got a job pretty quickly up in Toronto, but we had a little 18 month old and Rachel was pregnant with with our second son. So we, and she was working three days a week, part-time and had to go back to work after 12 weeks um, uh, of maternity leave. So we didn't know what would happen. And, um, and I think we thought about that. Could we live, could we buy a home with another couple and live with them maybe for a half decade 
build some equity up and then go from there. But it was it's one of my best friends and his girlfriend. Could we have done that? And then we thought they won't like the kids. That, so <laughs> that's, that's what changes it. So what this couple yeah. did is they could afford to put down $200,000 each for a down payment. They came together. They put down 400000 on this down payment. And I think it's a great idea. But my question is, what happens when you have kids? Because that changes the whole thing. But you know what I would do? I would I would move out and I would rent out my share of the house uh, with their approval. I'd find tenants that they would like uh, it, once I had a kid and I would be I would maybe I don't know, I'd rent somewhere. I'd, I'd use that money. I'd have to figure it out. But I think kids would change it because if I'm living with a couple and we get along great and they have a baby and I don't have kids, I don't want to hear that kid crying all night. You don't. I know. And would you change somebody else's diapers? It's one thing to change your own kid's diapers. No, it's, but it's that's another... not part of the deal. I'm not saying it. Buying a house with someone. I'm not changing your well, you diapers or your writing. kid's diapers. You don't no. get it in writing, but you're like, hey, I'm really in the middle of this great Netflix show. Um, I hear the baby from the other room. Can you run and take care? You wouldn't no, well, say that to a friend. Of course Because there's also training involved. Or now, a roommate. I wouldn't say that to a roommate. That's what you are, essentially, when you come together in this type of an agreement. You're roommates. You but are. You know what? There's, so there's another trend that's happening. Which I I love this trend. So it's a uh, single women, divorced women who okay. Gordon and I have, are interested right now. What's what? Well, go ahead. <laughs> who who have kids uh, yeah. and they're they can't afford to purchase a home, so they come together with another friend who's also divorced who has kids and they're buying homes together. Yeah, they should do that. That makes perfect sense. Oh, I think that's amazing. I think that's and, and you know there's even seniors who do this. So like senior women, like you know, remember the Golden Girls. So it's like the Golden Girls, like they, you know, if their spouses pass away first or, you know, they're just not yeah. with them anymore, they come together and they buy homes together and they put their equity together and, you know, they will get help together. They will get, you know, like a PSW to come in and help them on a regular basis. I, I love these ideas. I think if my mom was alone, if that ever were to happen, she'd live with a friend of hers who, who's who been divorced for some time. Uh, what her, what she's worried does is, is if my dad is alone, he'll marry somebody who's like 40. <laughs> What? He'll, I like he'll some there's some Anna Nicole Smith will come along and and take his money. That's, but good for oh and take his money. Nah, well, he needs to that. have that on lockdown. But good for him if an Anna Nicole Smith comes along. Why I, not? I don't know about that. <laughs> By the way, this picture though now this picture this couple it, it does look like I'm just looking at the photo. It's three guys and a girl, so this looks yes. like a. So a, one of the couples is gay. A yes. male gay couple, and so and maybe that reduces the sort of. For heterosexual people, I don't know whether there would be like maybe this is the more ideal what scenario. What do you think's gonna happen with four heterosexual? Like, what's look? What's your biggest concern here? I think there was a Kevin Klein movie where he was married to Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, and all of a sudden there was like couple sharing all through the subdivision. No, I, that's why does your mind go there? I think that consenting it's perfectly, adults. That's the name of the movie. I think it's a great and the name idea. of Dave Bradley's podcast. But you can have no, male not. and female roommates and. <laughs> Okay, I don't know you what, could, what. Yes, of course you can. Absolutely, we had in university we had six guys living with uh, with one girl, and it was. And, and did ev- she date any of you? Of course not. She wasn't that stupid. Yes. Yeah, see, we it thought works. our boyfriends were trash, but whatever. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We greatly appreciate it. We'll take our weekend, count to ten, breathe a little bit, and we hope you have a brilliant weekend. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow on uh, rather on Monday. 5.30 to 9 a.m., and if you miss any of that, we take the best parts, uh, we think anyway, and put it together right here where you just listened and downloaded to Toronto Today. Thanks again.